0: Okay, when I ended yesterday, anybody remember what century we were in? 1200s. The 1200s were remembered as being a high time in medieval history. Uh, Architecture was at a peak. At that time, they thought that churches housed the Holy Miracle where in the Eucharist, in Communion, right before you partake, Partook, the bread turned into Christ's physical body, and the wine turned into Christ's blood. And it was a miracle. So with that in mind, the churches were meant to be incredible cathedrals because, to honor the miracle that they thought was happening in place. They were also designed as teaching places to teach, and that's why there was murals of biblical stories and such. So in architecture, it was a, it was a peak. Uh, these, these flying buttresses were reaching and craning for the skies. It was a great time to be alive if you were a Christian because if you looked at the Pope, here the, the church was over all of your known world. That's what you saw when you saw the Pope's power, when you heard the Pope had bent the knee of uh, John of England or Philip of France. You thought, yes, his church is marching on. You saw the mendicant friars in St. Francis of Assisi and Dominic and St. Dominic and how there was a whole new revival. People were going on pilgrimages. They were reading the gospels. They were selling their stuff to the poor. Uh, You looked at the universities. The businesses were thriving. People were going to universities and they were writing great works of theology. It was a high time. It seems like it had, had finally climbed out of the dark ages and was entering this golden era. It reached its high point near the end of the 1200s. The cardinals debated who should be the next pope. Should it be someone of great spiritual mores, or should it be someone who's skilled in political matters? They decided it should be someone who was very spiritual, someone of the Franciscan ideals, someone who believed in poverty and humility. And he rode the donkey, he rode a donkey into Rome, barefoot, very spiritual man. I think he took the name, I think he took the name I, because I only think it was Clement or, or Innocent, I'm not sure which one it was, or I think it was Celestine or something. But anyway, he got into this office and he realized this is no place for a spiritual person. And he sat before the cardinals, he shed his papal robes, he says, I'm leaving this office and nobody can change my mind. They replaced him with a man named Boniface, who took the name Boniface VIII. He, in the year 1300, declared it a year of jubilee, a holy year to the Lord, where anybody who made a pilgrimage to the Church of St. Peter or the Church of St. Paul in Rome would receive, quote, full and copious pardon for all their sins. At a Time when you thought you were forgiven for your sins up till baptism, Christ's blood in the medieval mind wiped away all eternal sins, but any sin committed after baptism required a temporary punishment that you could work off either through uh, sacraments or penance or pilgrimage or, or giving alms or... Uh, if you didn't, purgatory. So you didn't want a long time in purgatory. So to hear that you could get a chance to have all your sins wiped away, needless to say, uh, throngs poured into Rome. People were so grateful that they were just giving money to the church like crazy. At St. At Paul's, it took two men days just to count all the money that was just pouring in from grateful travelers. Uh, Boniface, during this time, he wore this papal crown that had something like oh, 40 emeralds and 60 sapphires and and just, I mean, it was just absolutely incredible. People were hearing him say, I am Caesar, I am, I am Emperor. Dante, who wrote what is now known as the Divine Comedy, was on this trip to Rome and he was so disgusted by the Pope that when Cicero leads him through, I can't remember if it was Cicero or Virgil, but anyways, one of the popes leads him through hell and there you see the pope in hell. So at this point it looked like the church was on top of the world, but it was a, at this point a very corrupt institution. Things came to a head with Boniface. He got into an argument with Philip the Fair of France. Philip said, he exacted a a tax on clergy that said half of a clergyman's income must go to the prince. The Pope said that is an unlawful tax, and anybody who exacts that tax from someone or anybody who pays that tax is going to be excommunicated. (coughs) Philip responded by saying, okay, no more gold is leaving this country and ending up in the papal pockets. Philip responded by making one of the most pompous, arrogant claims that the papal office ever made. His bull is, I think, now known as unum sanctus, where he says, he makes two claims. One, he said, Jesus gave Peter two swords, the sword of the church and the sword of of the civil power. Both belong to the pope, and the pope gives the power of the sword to the king on the condition that he submits to the pope, and when the pope When the king does not submit to the pope, the sword reverts back to the pope. He also said that outside of submission to the pope, nobody could be saved. So Philip responded by kidnapping Boniface and beating him up, and he died. (laughs) One of Philip's servants says, the pope My master's words are made of steel. The pope's words are just mere words. Someone said of Boniface, he entered the office like a fox, he ruled like a lion, but he died like a dog. There was another pope who had a very brief time in office. We're now around 1305. The next pope was a man from France who never set foot in Italy the whole time he was the pope. This started what the Catholic Church now refers to as the Babylonian captivity. The popes during this time resided in Avignon for about 70 years, and just like Israel was in Babylon for 70 years, the pope was in France for 70 years, from about 1305 to 1378. During this time, this Hundred Years' War started between France and England, which went on for well over 100 years. It started because uh, one of the early successors to William the Conqueror was a Frenchman who owned land in France. I explained this briefly yesterday. Uh, so this person was the King of England, but he also had vast land holdings in France, which made him a vassal in the feudal system of the French King. And this tension went on, and in the Hundred Years' Wars, England kind of invaded France to try to claim this for them. Now England had the cutting edge military technology of the time, which was the longbow. The longbow shot much further than the French crossbow. So what would happen in battle was they would send the longbow people first and the English arrows were making it to the French army long before the French arrows were coming back. These arrows could pierce armor. So the initial wave of Frenchmen were completely pierced with arrows, and at this time, right behind the longbowmen, people with short swords would come. And so during this way, England was able to win many battles against France. But because the Pope was now in France, he was now viewed as a French puppet. When he was in Rome, he was known as the Bishop of Rome, or Peter's successor, and a a universal spiritual father. In France, he was just a French puppet. So lots of people during this time were starting to turn on the Pope, especially in England and other countries that were at war with France. During this time, there was another tremendous tragedy. In 1347, there was a, a ship, a trade ship. There was an extra passenger on board that nobody noticed. It was a rat carrying the fleas that were infected with the bubonic plague. And when this ship pulled into, I think it was Sicily, all of the soldiers, all of the passengers on the ship were either dead or nearly dead, and everybody on that ship died. For the next three years, the bubonic plague, or is now known as the Black Death, swept through Europe, and there's estimates of anywhere from 30% to 50% of, of Europe died. Some small communities were wiped out completely, they just disappeared. Everybody was gone. In Constantinople, 88% of the, of the population died. You would start to feel a tickle in your throat and you'd most likely be dead within three days. Sometimes you went to bed healthy and you woke up dead. <laughs> but at this time, it was just terrible tragedy. People were tormented because you had no idea. This was completely indiscriminate except for it seemed not to affect the Jewish communities as much. So horrible rumors bar- started being spread about the Jews that they were poisoning the wells and so people started massacring the Jews uh, to try to stop the problem. Some the- one theory is that uh, Jews had more cats because Christians were superstitious about cats and the cats were killing the rats but people don't really know. Uh, the consequences of this plague were absolutely terrible. The spiritual leaders, the bishops, the pastors were abandoning their communities. People were growing completely isolated. Parents were leaving their kids abandoned. Nobody wanted to die. It was everybody was becoming completely isolated. There was a group of people called the flagellants who were whipping themselves. They, what they did was they joined a group and they had a ceremony that lasted 33 and a half days. One day for every year of Christ time on earth. And three times a day they whipped themselves. Twice a day they would have a march two by two to the church, uh, pray to God, march back to the public square, uh, take off their shirts and start whipping themselves with leather thongs and bones until their, blacks, their backs were bloody. And during this time their leader would... Uh, Be preaching about the sufferings of Christ. This was their way of trying to identify with his sufferings, and they did this again. And then they had a third private whipping, and they did this for three and a half weeks. Uh, People were gathering in the squares, uh, crying out to God for mercy because you had no idea when you were going to die. It would kind of this, this disease would kind of come in waves. It would be six months. And then during the winter hit, it would kind of die out for a little while, and then it would come back. This, Some people were starting to be even more ascetic, trying to earn God's favor by beating themselves up. Other people were saying it doesn't matter, and we're just becoming totally debauched uh, with orgies and whatever. There was also the problem of all this free housing, free livestock, free tools that were popping up as the population was just decimated. And so people were becoming gluttons and greedy and snatching up houses, snatching up tools, snatching up land. Uh, During this time, there was a young woman who was born by the name of Catherine of Siena. She was the 24th of 25 kids. When she was seven, she had a vision of Peter, Paul, and John. And in this vision, it was she was so inspired to give her life to a religious pursuit of God. And she told this to her parents. And she asked if she could turn their basement into a hermitage. So they gave her a room in the basement that she locked herself up in and, and became at seven years old and became a little ascetic. She laid a wooden board down and she got a log for her pillow. She even claimed during this time to receive an invisible stigmata. Uh, St. Francis was... One of the first people to apparently receive the stigmata, which is just when you start receiving the wounds of Christ. Uh, but she said they were invisible to keep her humble. Um, but her parents tried to marry her off, and so she cut off all her hair so she'd be less attractive. At sixteen, she joined a a branch of the Dominican Order. This branch allowed her to stay at home and study. She became well-versed in the scripture and the early church fathers, she just devoted herself to study and the care of the poor and the sick. Whenever uh, the plague would sweep back through her community, she would be out there serving people. At the age of 20, she had a vision where she became married to Christ. And apparently in this vision, Christ even gave her a ring. And for the rest of her life, she's claimed that this mystical union with Christ gave her the strength to persevere for what she did. (laughs) She also had a real heart for reforming the church. And along with the understanding of the time, she was grieved to see the spiritual leader in France instead of where he was supposed to be in Rome. So she traveled to Pope and pleaded with him to come back to Rome. And whether it had any effect, I don't know, but within a year, he had made his way back to Rome. But the Pope, who came back to Rome, died within a year. So now it came time to elect a new pope. The cardinals, from all their times of being elected in French, in France, were Frenchmen. The people in Rome were terrified that the cardinals would elect another French pope. So they put them in a building. Before they got into the building, they searched to make sure there was no exits. And they locked the cardinals in the church. And they said, you are not coming out of there until you elect an italian or, Fran- or roman pope <laughs> so they elected an italian his name was i think it was urban um, we'll call him urban if he wasn't <coughs> urban <laughs> urban was a reformer and he started having strong dictatorial ways and the card the french cardinals were absolutely appalled so they said this or this election of the pope is invalid because we were forced into it. We didn't actually discern the spirit's will, we were just pressured into this. So they elected a second pope. Urban responded by appointing his own college of cardinals. So now the church had a huge crisis on their hands. There was two fully authorized popes. There had been rival popes before, but every other time before, Uh, A rival pope had either murdered his way to the top or a king had appointed him. But it it was never the divinely sanctioned way of appointment. But now the divinely sanctioned way of appointment had appointed two rival popes. One pope ruling from Avignon and one pope ruling from Rome. And this started becoming a huge problem for Christendom because the pope was your spiritual leader in so many different areas. This was splitting communities right down the middle. Diffing to the side and debating who's our spiritual authority here. Uh, England was of course siding with the one in Rome. Scotland was of course siding with the one in France because he just could never pick the same thing that the English picked. And this problem was continuing. I mean these popes were selling taxes. Uh, I, a little let me back up a little bit while the Pope was in France, he was, grow, he was growing hatred for himself because now that he was in France he didn't have the, these papal states for all the revenue that was coming in from all the lands he owned in Italy. So to do this he was raising the taxes on people. He also was developing this horrible policy that said when a C or a, a, a position of a bishop was left open, all the income from that congregation for the first year went to the Pope and if the position was never filled, it just kept coming to the Pope. So the Pope was doing two things. He was moving bishops around so that there would be lots of first years of income coming in, and he was also leaving places completely abandoned so the money was coming in. Just a a growing hatred for the Pope. I I see God in, in all of this, humbling the papal office, bringing it down to wake people up from their slumber to see that he wants to be the head of the church. There should not be a human head of the church in that sense. So anyway, uh, universities started debating this problem of the two popes. They said, you know, what we really need is a council that is above the pope. But the problem with that was canon law, which was binding on the church, it's what popes studied before they became the pope, said the only council that is valid is one that's ratified by a pope. (laughs) So the problem is which pope would ratify this council? Finally, the cardinals from both sides, the French cardinals and the English cardinals, uh, got together. And during this time, uh, either the Pope in France would die and they quickly elect another one, let the problem solve itself. Or, same thing if the, the Roman Pope died. So the cardinals kind of abandoned their popes. They had a council and they elected a third Pope. <laughs> now, neither Pope wanted to resign. So now these cardinals had elected three authorized popes. Now, no matter what denomination you're from, three popes is too many. (laughs) This problem continued. One pope started selling indulgences to wage crusades on the other popes. Uh, It was just getting to be dramatically ugly. Finally, they said they got one of the Pope's permission to call an even, an even bigger council. This became, they invited as much of the church as they, they could. It became, uh, this council uh, was at Constance and it went on for about three years. And they tried to resolve the problems. They thought we need to have put councils above the Pope. This time they elected a fourth Pope and this one stuck. The French pope uh, continued to claim he was proclaiming his pope until the day he died, but no one paid attention to him. The Roman one, uh, I think, was captured, and the alternate third pope finally stepped down. But this fourth pope, when he was elected, immediately repudiated the power of the council, because if the council can give, the council can take away. So this was the mess of the church. Now, in England... Wycliffe, who was one of the greatest theologians of his time and recognized that that, was appalled by what was going on in Christendom. And he started teaching radical ideas on three areas, on the church, on communion, and on the scriptures. His views on the church were that there is a, an invisible body of believers based on the elect that Christ is the head of. There's also a visible institutional or militant church, and they don't don't always line up. He also said that dominion or power over man, whether you are spiritual, have a spiritual office or whether you have a secular office, only comes from God. And if you, in order to be the rightful heir of that power, it's not about how you claim the power, it's whether your life is matching up with God's power. you should. The only power you have is the power that God gives you. And if you're not living for him, it doesn't matter what title you have, of king or pope, you are not the rightful heir of that power. He also started uh, attacking the sacramental views, that there was power in the communion, that there was power in the sacraments. He said, no, the only power is in Christ. And the only power that you receive is whether your faith is genuine. It has nothing to do with the religious act. And for the scriptures, he started translating uh, the Bible into English. Now people were, the church was appalled at this. You're making the Bible common. You're throwing the great pearls of wisdom and it's being trampled underfoot by the common swine. And he said, no. Uh, Moses heard God's law in his own voice. The apostles heard God's law in their own language. People always respond best when they hear God's law in their own language. Uh, Wycliffe ended up being burned for his faith, but thankfully it was forty years after he died, which is a much better alternative. (laughs) His bones were dug up and burned and thrown into the river. However, his ideas were spreading to Bohemia by the man uh, of Jan Haas, who was adopting his ideas, and he was Also appalled by the Pope. He was contrasting the Pope and Christ, saying Christ rode on a donkey. The Pope rides on a majestic stallion. Jesus washed people's feet. The Pope demands that kings kiss his feet. He said this is not the spirit of Christ. And he also was saying that, I mean, there was different people like William of Ockham who was saying that all authority... uh, Ultimately, comes from God. The saying, "When councils err, uh, when people err, God's word should be this, the standard, even if you have trouble interpreting it." And John Huss was taking up these ideas that the Bible should be our authority, because it had been an absolute debacle what happened when popes tried to be the final authority, when councils tried to be the final authority. It becomes corrupted by power and time, and what that's just what happened But God's words, words abide forever. John Hus was called to be um, critiqued for his views, and he was actually brought to the very council that resolved the Pope's dispute, the Council of Constance. He had been told that he would receive the king's protection, but when he was there, he was charged with all sorts of heresy, and they said, you must recant. And he looked at this list of charges against him, and he said, I can't, re- I can't recant this because I've never taught this stuff. And they said, it doesn't matter. You just must confess to reject these ideas. He said, "I can't reject these ideas because I'm, I've never taught them. Uh, they were weren't after accuracy. They were wanting him to be a humbled man, that to show that he had erred. And because he refused to can't, he was he was burned at the stake. Uh, the popes after the Council of, of Constance were some of the most despicable." Uh, Jesus had totally left the building, so to speak, when it came to the Vatican, and what had replaced the Vatican was um, just unspeakable immorality orgies uh, alexander the, the, the i don 't remember the number but his, I mean he had several mistresses I mean he was having giving his kids different religious <laughs> posts, and it was just i mean these men were wealthy uh, a lot of like the famous buildings from the time were built by the money that these popes had acquired. And that takes us right up to the Reformation. I mean, these popes were selling indulgences. This is the scene when Martin Luther stepped onto the scene that he was reacting against when he turned against the pope and the power thereof. Uh, This was also known as the Renaissance period, where the ideal was to return to the glories of antiquity, and there was want people wanting to be a well-rounded figure, uh, th- that sounded funny, but people wanted to be um, well-skilled in all areas is a better way to put it. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was the, uh, was the classic man of this time, and they were starting to make man the center of reality, saying that he's the one we are aspiring to. So, you start to see a surge in secular power. You start to see just the hint of the dawn of the Reformation. Wycliffe is known as the morning star of the Reformation. And this is where I have to leave the story, because this is where I stopped reading in all my books. (laughs) And then I hope to pick up this story in either next fall, if George Tabor can't make it, or, the spring of 13, Craig says at the very latest, but God may have other plans. So that, that is my goal. But before I end this, I want to just, um, I think, draw out a few lessons from this time of history. It's important that you be well-versed in history because God is a God of history. And he has so many lessons to teach people from history. Satan, One of Satan's favorite tools, however, is history as well. Satan loves to cast doubt. Just like God likes to reveal Himself through history, Satan likes to cast doubt on God's revelation through history. That's why a lot of history books are outright slams on Christianity, making claims like the only reason we believe in a Trinity is because corrupt men came to power and made it official church doctrine. That before Nicaea, nobody believed in the deity of Christ, and Gnostic Gospels were the ones that were probably the true Christianity if it wasn't suppressed by Orthodox people who came to power, or people who say, you know, Christianity is no better than Islam because you look at the Crusades, you look at Olaf Tryggvason who conquered Norway for Christ by killing them. And you use selective history and you start getting discouraged that maybe Christianity is no better than anything else. Satan loves to use history. That's one reason I think it's so important for you to become equipped in history as it really happened. Just In the same way, you should learn to study philosophy so that you can answer bad philosophy. It's important that you know how to answer that. So these are some lessons that I want to draw from. I think history has two main functions. One is to glorify God, and one is also to humble mankind. I looked into some very ugly chapters in our past of the Inquisition, of the Crusades, of the forced conversions. And I think it's so important to look every one of those in the face because every one of us, I believe, has the potential for a Crusade, for an Inquisition, to pressure someone into conversion. And when we see in graphic detail the horrors of the human heart, we'll be repulsed by that and say, God, I need you. I don't want that. The other thing I think we need to see is that we make mistakes. A lot of people are very passionately, have passionate convictions that God's Word is infallible, and to that I say amen. But what they fail to also note is that we are very fallible, and we sometimes misinterpret God's Word. If you don't believe that we sometimes misinterpret God's Word, just take a quick look at the last the 1500 years that we've covered people made some colossal errors either they actually let me say either they made colossal errors of interpretation or we're making colossal errors of interpretation but one of us is making a huge error and it's important that we not confuse our ability to interpret with God's infallible human being when the Renaissance, when the scholastics were trying to defend Christianity with reason alone, a man by the name of Bonaventure was kind of reacting to this idea because he said, uh, we are all blinded by sin. That's the problem of trying to solve things by reason alone. The only one who can open our eyes is the Holy Spirit, is the divine illumination. Apart from that illumination, all the reason in the world will not make sense. It doesn't make anything unreasonable. Reason's not the problem. It's our faulty use of reason. And he said, if you really want to know the truth, you have to pursue God with humility, asking Him to open your eyes to the truth. And my purpose in, in showing you the, the mistakes of the church is not to cast doubt on, oh boy, can we really believe anything? No, you'll need to have convictions, but your convictions should always be your trust should always be placed in God and his Spirit's ability to illumine you and not in your own ability to rightly divide the word of truth which is important but the only way we can rightly divide the word of truth is by the power of the Holy Spirit not by unaided reason this is something this is a problem that came up when the Protestants said sola scriptura we splintered into I don't know what the latest count is but thousands upon thousands of denominations because the motto is not me and my bible like some people think it is, the motto should only be by the Holy Spirit's mercy and grace he will reveal what the scriptures are really saying so before it was the church will decide but the church was making mistakes now it should be yes the scriptures are final authority but only as the Holy Spirit has illuminated us and I'm not in any way saying let's just do seances to determine the Holy Spirit's will he commands us to be disciplined in our study in our memorization. He does give us the responsibility to learn stuff that other people may label as just academic. It's important that we learn to study, which is why I'm so grateful for a weekend like this, where you guys can devote your minds to learning for God's glory. So, you need to have a humble view of yourself. Thomas Akempis, during this time of turmoil in the 1300s, wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. Thomas Moore, who was in one of the King of England's court, he said that uh, this was one of three books that every person should read. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuit Movement, he said that uh, there was a book he read regularly. John Wesley (laughs) said that this book uh, was the best summing up of the Christian life he had ever read. And in this book, uh, The Imitation of Christ. He pointed out, among many other things, but he said two of the most important lessons Christians can learn. One is the imitation of Christ. If you want to know what it means to be a true Christian, you study the life of Christ and you emulate him. The second thing was to learn to see yourself as God sees you. There's been a pendulum all throughout history to preach self-esteem on the one hand, to view yourself as great and beautiful regardless of what you do. There's also been a pendulum to see yourself as a stinking worthless rag regardless of what you do. But when you learn to see yourself like God sees you, it's an antidote to both of those problems. Because you see that you are loved regardless of what you do because God created you. You also see when you, po- when you uh, compare your power with the power of God, you see just how frail and fragile you are. And that in and of yourself, you have no power to accomplish the good deeds. So those are so- a couple lessons. Another lesson of history is, in light of this, put your faith completely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We don't have official confession and acts of penance today but we have a lot of informal acts of penance where we are still looking to our actions to clean up the mess we made and some of us that just continues to fail and you just feel guilty until the day you die phrase that helped me so much was do not deny christ the fruit of his cross when you're wallowing in guilt and despair you are denying the fruit that christ is deserved for the terrible ordeal that he put himself. You must walk in freedom and forgiveness. This is what Wycliffe said. Beware of looking to anything else for your righteousness other than the blood of Christ. I have a sister-in-law, Katrina, who did not grasp that. And her life was full of constant turmoil. And she took her life. When Heidi and I were recording. I, I, I took Heidi to cut bank and she met her dad there and I went to the cemetery where Katrina was baid, uh, laid and I just laid there thinking about her and her choice and everybody else who was in the cemetery and what they left behind. How each one of them had stepped into God's drama and had left the stage. Their time was over. And I thought how fleeting in light of God's grand, redemptive drama, is our time on the stage. And you each have your time right now. What are you going to do with it? You are shaping history either by your inactions or your actions. History wakes us up from the time warp we put ourselves in, where each day just kind of drags on and it seems meaningless. We say, no, God is the ruler of history, and each of us has a role to play. Are you going to waste it on pursuit of self in the building of the kingdom of man that Augustine talked about, or are you going to build the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom that does not last? If history shows us anything, it shows us how much, if we want to accomplish something, we need God, because power and wealth and time are all corrupting influences. Anything that moves us away from God is a corrupting influence. Any movement of God started out of reform, no matter how great, when it moved away from God, it became corrupt. I mean, our church, for example, I think it's terrific that we've in some ways moved away from the rigidity and ceremony of a traditional church, and it's great. But just anything, we can become complacent and lose sight of this. This is not new to have a movement like this. I mean, the mendicant friars, such a powerful movement, but these people who had the zeal for God ended up becoming uh, lazy interlopers that the priests couldn't stand to have in their community because they were just mooching off their community and they didn't care to preach. No matter how great a movement of God, as soon as it's not all about dependence on God, it is going to die. History is God's story we've seen some very ugly things in the shaping of nations uh... of nations that were converted at the sword that's not that's not god's way but god uses it when, when uh, clovis converted three thousand of men it opened up a, a path for the missionaries to go to britain and establish at the time which were, were, that were vital monasteries you know we've seen the ugly army of god They claim to be the army of God, the visible, sinful people only claiming God's power but not living in it. But all throughout Scripture, there's also been a spiritual army comprised of men and women who are fighting for the earthly kingdom. And they're not fighting through arrogant words, through force. They're fighting through service, through sacrifice, through dependence on God's word. They're fighting on their knees rather than buckling people's knees. They're being stretched rather than stretching people on the rack. They're people that God is using. And lots of these people never get mentioned in the history books because one of the limitations of history is it's usually recorded by the wealthy and the powerful and the winners. Not all of it. Much of it's recorded by other people. but. When we look around and see that how Christ's kingdom has advanced, we see the fruits of the labor. And I implore each one of you to join that army that's fighting for Christ's kingdom. That you don't waste your life in the pursuit of self. That God wants to use you. He, don't, don't look to politics. Don't look to your earthly governments. I think you've seen what happens. In history, I'm not saying stay away from politics. No, politics is an act of service to your community. Pray for your leaders. If God calls you to enter a position of power, do so as a servant. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux pleaded with the popes that he had endorsed for the office. He says, Remember, you're a steward of this position, you're not an owner. There's no poison like thinking you're the owner of this power. And the popes didn't hear. His warning. But it's the same way. God wants to use you. And if, as you serve, He's going to give you positions of power and influence. Always be a servant. Always follow Christ. Always use the power that He's given you. And always see what we can turn into. Don't forget the inquisitions. Don't forget the crusades. Don't forget the ugly stuff. Because it's in every one of you. When you fall away from God, That's what you could become. Thankfully, you will probably not be put in the trends of history where you will be the one persecuting someone like that. But you may be persecuting your friends, alienating your people in your communities by a a desire that and, and actions that do not honor God. So, to close, I just want to lift up the God of history, and that our response to this should be to worship our King. In the midst of the persecutions of the first century, God gave the church the book of Revelation, which has been so misused all throughout history and trying to... It's a classic exercise in missing the point of what Revelation is about. It's about the revelation of our king, who no matter who is in control on the earth, we have a king who's above all the other nations. And no matter how bleak the political circumstances look, no matter how bleak your institutional local community church looks. There's a king that you can serve because his victory is assured. This is your time, people. Don't waste it.